This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange traded funds with Global X ETFs. Exchange traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. Global X specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. The year was 2015. Disney had bought the Star Wars franchise and was getting ready to release its first new addition to the series, The Force Awakens. Before the movie's release, Disney CEO Bob Iger showed it to the series creator George Lucas. And I actually spoke to Bob Iger about this, and he said that when he showed the film to George Lucas, George Lucas himself said, you know, dude, you remade my movie. To Lucas, the plot of The Force Awakens seemed awfully close to his first Star Wars movie from 1977. And Iger explained to him You know, in a way, we had to because we had to satisfy the most ardent fan or else they would have revolted. We have to kind of get them on board with what they know before we can take this story in directions that they might not be as familiar with. The moment underscored a tension that Disney executives have been trying to navigate ever since, trying to keep longtime super fans happy while also attracting a new generation to the franchise. Since Disney started releasing new Star Wars movies, it's been walking that line, sometimes successfully, other times less so. And in the process, the company has discovered ugly divisions in Star Wars fandom. Divisions that will be tested again this week when Disney releases the final film in its Star Wars trilogy, The Rise of Skywalker. Today on the show, the rise of superfans. They power Disney to record profits. Now they could threaten the future of one of the company's most valuable franchises. Welcome to The Journal our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Tuesday, December 17th. Disney assumed control of the Star Wars universe in 2012. This was the third of Disney's major acquisitions under CEO Bob Iger. Eric Schwartzel covers entertainment. He first bought Pixar, the animation studio behind big hits like Toy Story. Then they bought Marvel Studios, started introducing the Marvel Cinematic Universe to everyone. And then in 2012, the last acquisition that kind of built Disney into what it is today when it comes to these beloved and famous characters was the $4 billion deal to buy Lucasfilm. Lucasfilm owned the Star Wars brand, and $4 billion was a lot of money. But Disney had a plan to make it pay. They envisioned new TV series and spinoff movies, merchandise tie-ins, and theme park attractions. And what would make it all work was that Star Wars came with arguably the most valuable asset of all. Two generations worth of devoted, hardcore fans. Fans like Kareem Darcy. My parents were Star Wars fans. They lined up for Return of the Jedi. I was, uh, you know, maybe in some part of my mom's belly at the time. But so when I was born... I you know, would grow up 
watching either Indiana Jones or Star Wars movies every Sunday. So, Karima, how do you celebrate your fandom? Wow, great question. So, predominantly right now, I am part of a Star Wars fan club in Toronto called Order 416. 416 is our Toronto area code. We love doing Star Wars cosplay, hosting events like book clubs, lightsaber battles, trivia. Can you talk to me about what your lightsaber is? Is it like I have a, <laughs> a son who has a lightsaber. It's plastic. Uh, yeah, so it's a plastic toy. <laughs> I'm a grown man. It's a plastic tube that glows up, and it just feels so cool to have a glowing light stick. Fans like Kareem don't just buy lightsabers. They buy hundred-plus-dollar cosplay outfits, Blu-ray discs, even stuff like R2-D2-branded crockpots. And they don't just go see Star Wars. They see it dozens of times. They shell out for plane tickets to Disney's official fan convention, Star Wars Celebration. And all this adds to Disney's bottom line. Like after it opened new Star Wars attractions in its theme parks, the revenue rose in Disney's entire theme park division. Same with Disney Plus, Disney's streaming service, the platform that allows you to stream almost every Star Wars movie and series. On the day it launched, Disney Plus had 10 million subscribers. This is what Disney had envisioned when it bought Lucasfilm, George Lucas's company that owned the Star Wars brand. And it's why Disney was so worried about keeping superfans happy, because the company knew there would be consequences if it messed this up. You don't want the fan websites to start spreading bad buzz about a movie. Or if they start saying in the early, you know, days of the release, hey, Disney really screwed this one up, that's going to just sort of contaminate the overall discussion and it might depress turnout a little bit. You also have people, though, who, without question, will go see a Star Wars movie four or five times in a theater. But if they don't like it or they don't like the direction it's taking these characters or this story, they might go see it only twice. So you're actually looking at a drop in box office revenue, too. When Disney began making its first Star Wars movie, it worked hard to create something super fans would recognize. It started with putting beloved original cast members in the new movie's trailer. When the first trailer hit, there was this moment of almost like ecstasy from fans when Han Solo, played by Harrison Ford, of course, and Chewbacca enter the Millennium Falcon. Harrison Ford says, Chewie. I think for many fans, just the idea of seeing an aged Harrison Ford on the Millennium Falcon was kind of like a nostalgia overload that they never thought was even possible. Just seeing the trailer alone brought me to tears because it was so real. Kareem remembers watching the trailer's debut. It started with dialogue of Luke Skywalker saying, The Force is strong in my family. He says, my father has it. My sister has it. My sister has it. And he says, you have that power too. You have this power too. And when he said that, you know, I took it personally. (laughs) For fans like Kareem, there was a lot riding on whether this movie was good. Their connection to Star Wars runs deep. These movies are core to who they are. So I'm an Ismaili Muslim. And Star Wars resonates with spirituality and mysticism and Islam. 
the way Yoda talks about the Force being an eternal, ever-present energy that unites and binds all life. Life creates it, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. That's the concept of light in Islam, that it's everywhere. We just have to realize it. So at a very young age, I realized that my, my faith and my fandom were completely coherent. And of course, Tatooine is actually a place in Tunisia. It's a real place in Tunisia. It's a, Jeddah from Rogue One is a real place in Saudi Arabia. Jedi is an Arabic word meaning mystical warrior. Kareem studies these movies. He goes deep into the philosophy, and he finds a lot of joy there. So when Force Awakens finally came out, he was really hoping it would deepen that connection. I remember being really nervous because I wanted to like it. I wanted to be able to rewatch it, use it as my bomb for life, use it as something that I know will make me happy. So it was pretty early on, like the first few scenes of the movie, Poe Dameron was talking to Kylo Ren and he made some sarcastic joke. The old man gave it to you. It's just very hard to understand you with all the... Surgeon. Apparatus. And it was good. I'm laughing. I'm happy. I'm enjoying it. And then I sort of could relax. A lot of people enjoyed The Force Awakens. The movie pulled in over $2 billion worldwide. It is still the highest grossing movie in U.S. box office history. With its first movie, Disney had done what Bob Iger had described. They'd gotten the superfans back on board. They had their base. But they also had a problem. I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, older fans die off, and you need to sort of start finding new ones to bring on board. To power the Star Wars profit engine for the next 40 years, Disney had to cultivate new fans, people who didn't grow up with Luke and Leia. And with the base secure, Disney could concentrate on growing the franchise and stretching the story in unexpected directions. And that's when some fans detected a serious disturbance in the Force. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Welcome back. Disney had planned for three different directors to helm the three movies in its new Star Wars series. J.J. Abrams delivered the first. The second fell to Ryan Johnson, 
a director known for brainy thrillers. And Johnson made a very different kind of Star Wars movie. He went beyond nostalgia. In Johnson's take, the baby-faced hero of the original series, Luke Skywalker, was distinctly different. He was old and bitter. His voice dripped with sarcasm and disappointment. You don't need Luke Skywalker. Did you hear a word I just said? I think what? I'm going to walk out with a laser sword and face down the whole First Order? What did you think was going to happen here? You think that I came to the most unfindable place in the galaxy for no reason at all? Go away. Luke doesn't seem all that interested in saving the galaxy. And to underline the point, he chucks his lightsaber off a cliff. Kareem loved the movie. He says it humanized the hero. But not everybody saw it that way. And this is where Disney's creative choices started to cause serious divisions in Star Wars super fandom. I have a, a close friend of mine. Okay. He didn't like The Last Jedi very much. He was disappointed by Luke Skywalker. He thought the Luke Skywalker should be a hero and that Luke Skywalker should never give up and that Luke Skywalker should always fight for the good cause and not abandon his friends and not be depressed. And then what your friend got on Rotten Tomatoes to review the movie? Yeah. He was so upset with the movie he had a few sleepless nights, and so he got up out of bed at like, you know, two or three in the morning, made an account just to talk smack about The Last Jedi. Because, you know, Amara, my friend, he'll actually say he ruined my childhood. And I have a lot of friends who say that, that it ruined their childhood. Was there any division in your group? So he didn't come to Star Wars Celebration with me. We're still best friends. I was the best man at his wedding. Our friendship survived. But, uh, yeah, he doesn't come to a lot of Star Wars events. A grumpy Luke Skywalker wasn't the only thing bothering some fans. Some objected to a twist in the plot about the main character Rey's backstory. Others griped about how the director toyed with light speed. But there was another vein of criticism that had to do with casting. With the first movie, Disney had started making the Star Wars cast more diverse. For the first time, the protagonist of the series was a woman, Rey. Obviously, Carrie Fisher played Princess Leia, but Rey is much more of a Jedi warrior figure. As opposed to a woman in a bikini chained to a slug? Yeah, no, no bikinis in the new movie. John Boyega, a black actor, also joined the franchise as Finn, stormtrooper turned good guy. And that cast diversity only increased in the second movie. Disney introduced Rose, a mechanic who plays a pivotal role, played by Asian-American actress Kelly Marie Tran. And they also added a purple-haired female general, played by Laura Dern. Some fans really didn't like this. Some fans said, look, equal representation is fine, but you're turning Star Wars into the Women's March in space. Hmm. Others said that the idea of casting various ethnicities was falling victim to what they would call, you know, social justice warrior concerns. This criticism, as I'm sure you can imagine, obviously took on a very racist tone very quickly. Disney's movie had been pulled into a culture war. Battles over the new Star Wars became so heated online that Russian trolls saw them as an opportunity to gin up division in America. 
one researcher told Eric that trolls would identify fractious Star Wars online discussions. And just lob a couple bombs, you know, make a comment about Kelly Marie Tran, the actress who was cast in The Last Jedi, or make a comment about the female characters of Star Wars and essentially give the impression that America is more divided than ever, that we fight over everything, and that not even Star Wars is safe from this kind of political division. Angry superfans were taking it out on the box office, too. The second movie brought in 33% less in domestic box office sales than the first one. There was just a general lack of enthusiasm among some constituents. So there were some people who were not going to go see it a third or fourth time, say. Disney points out that The Last Jedi was still a blockbuster at the box office. But there's no question that the company was in a bind. Disney couldn't just placate the super fans because that would risk alienating the new fans it was trying to cultivate. One interesting kind of tension in this is China, where Disney has tried for years and years to introduce Star Wars to a country that didn't grow up with it, that has no nostalgia for it. And so the new films have really done very poorly in China because no one going to see these movies in China has any understanding. When, when Han Solo walks on the Millennium Falcon and says, Chewie, we're home, people in China are like, did he live there? What does he mean we're home? Like they have no idea that in 1977, this is the ship that they piloted in the original film. Right. So they've been trying to find ways to essentially seed an entire country on these stories. Right. It's it's not like 1977. The movie industry is now global. It can't just try to make those super fans happy. This is the tension, right? They can't only listen to the super fans, but they have to listen to the super fans. So this question of do you play to the base or do you try to broaden the audience, it seems like important not just in Star Wars but also in politics, that politicians struggle with this all the time. Yes, it's a perfect analogy. And also, it's apt in more ways than one because it's hard to figure out how representative the superfans are. I mean, they're very loud and they have big platforms, but does the average Star Wars fan register those complaints? And so... How much do you allow them to dictate the conversation and what direction the movies go in? We won't know the answer to that question until the new movie comes out this week. But one telling sign is that Disney brought back J.J. Abrams, director of the first movie, for this last installment. J.J. Abrams has really established himself as the go-to director for shepherding these beloved characters and stories and updating them for the present day, and doing it in a way that is very, for lack of a better word, very respectful to, to the fans. I spoke to one producer who has worked with him who said that it's almost like he has an invisible fan in his ear. Whenever he's making a movie or thinking about a story, he knows what the fans will like. He has a tough job. The Rise of Skywalker isn't just the last movie in Disney's trilogy. It's the final chapter in the Skywalker saga the story that began all the way back in 1977. I mean, 
you have to satisfy so many constituents to essentially wrap up what is going to have been a more than 40-year journey with these characters. Essentially, Disney needs to stick a landing like no other before. And they'll be doing this for some of the harshest critics in the galaxy, like Kareem's friend. He is coming with me opening night. Okay. He'll be there opening night. But he, along with two others, were cautiously optimistic. When they saw the trailer for Rise of Skywalker, the newest movie, they said, okay, it looks good, it looks good. This might be the redemption we want, but we're not going to get our hopes up. So they're very cautious now. They're a little jaded. It's tough because, as we know, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. There you go. (laughs) So what would make the new movie a redemption for them? Having a Skywalker saga wrap up in a way that brings peace back to the galaxy and vanquishes evil in a way that brings a victory to the Skywalker family would appease most fans. You know, basically a happy ending to the story. You know, episode eight was the middle of a trilogy and the middle is where you, you know, things go awry. So happy ending, to put it simply. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I fear nothing, for all is as the Force wills it. We are one with the Force, and the Force is with us. May the Force be with you. And with you. That's all for today, Tuesday, December 17th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Marcus Begala for music in today's show. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We come out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.